I want to tell a story about how man is able to create things that never existed before. And that the study of science is now not just the study of naturally occurring phenomena mm. in the absence of a human mind creating them. From Quanta Magazine, this is The Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Charlie Marcus. You're singing the song of the triumph of human imagination as expressed through science. So it's not just wild, yes. untamed imagination. It's imagination constrained by observations, by experiments, but ultimately imagination. Exactly. Charlie Marcus is a quantum physicist who I think is doing some of the most exciting work today on the effort to create something that doesn't exist yet, a quantum computer. Actually, Charlie and I started our careers together Back when he was a grad student and I was a postdoc, we worked on something pretty esoteric called the dynamics of charge density waves. You know, I think it's about half a lifetime ago that we worked together scientifically. It feels to me a little bit like, especially since I have a, a sort of a poor memory of my childhood, in a way it feels like more than half of my scientific life ago. Really? Because your, has, has your memory gotten my more life, detailed? Let's say half of my life ago, because that first half sort of barely counted. You know, it's like it's, huh. I don't have this vivid childhood that a lot of people do, except for the music store. Well, okay, maybe you better tell us what is this music store? Or what were you doing? Oh, boy. Well, yeah. So when I was in high school, I got a job working in a music store. And it was, you know, I was selling guitars and fixing guitars, and I was playing a lot of music then. And, uh, and it was really hands-on. It was like people coming in with, with broken musical instruments. And it was kind of the end of the hippie era, and it was all filled with, you know, hippies, and I completely latched onto it. And the weird thing was, was that I had incredible responsibility for a high school kid. You know, like I would open the store on Saturdays and go to the bank and get the money and put it in the cash register and, you know, like run the whole store until the closing time. That, that makes me think that this is, when you say music store, it's partly... The job that you were doing when you were helping people is partly electronics and partly mechanics. Mostly mechanics. I don't think that there was any electronics involved because it was kind of acoustic instruments that that was being really focused on okay. Them. Yeah, but it, but at home I had a I had an electric. You know, it, I was I was already doing electronics at that point. I mean, that just to me feels very emblematic or representative of your can-do attitude about making things work, you know, fixing stuff. Uh, and it sounds like you were doing was, that back in the music great, store. What was great about our working together, and actually there's a part of the story which I don't know whether you remember, but it has become, uh, you know, as you say, for me, emblematic of, of something else entirely. And, and with other good friends later in life, I've used this idea over and over again, but it, but it's, it comes from you, which is you said we should collaborate on something. And I said, uh, well, what? He said, oh, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, who cares? What a dumb, what a dumb question. Like, it doesn't oh, really? matter what we work on. Yeah, it, was, oh, it yeah. was sort of like, well, let's collaborate on something. And we just go, it's like an arbitrary choice. The fun is in the collaboration. It's not like oh. there's any great problem that needs to be solved that, you know, your skills and my skills will solve it. It's just pick something, work on it for the sheer pleasure of working with somebody on something. And that was, yeah. a, that was a new idea to me. And that's, that, that came ah. from you. And I, I really liked the idea. The idea is that somehow 
what we're doing here in this activity is such a human enterprise that it's not like there's this God-given list of problems that needs to be solved, and by hook or by crook, we're going to get to the bottom of the list. There, there is no list. There's only mm. us. And mm-hmm. that you can, you can just, like once you have a friend or a partner, you can say, well, let's just, let's just jump in and do something. And it turned out it was a really, it was a really great problem. And, hmm. um, you know, it, but, but it arose not because this was like some problem out there that needed to be solved. It arose because it was a friendship that needed something to fool around with. The problem that I got interested in was delay and how, did, how would delay affect dynamics and whether it would create chaos or whether it would always create, uh, you know, oscillations. So delay or, meaning here, what would that mean? Well, like, let's say you have this massively interconnected complex system that contains elements that, you know, in the, in the parlance of the field is called frustration, meaning that, that there are loops of interconnection. So A connects to B, B connects to C, C connects to D, and D connects back to A again. And that they may be doing something in which, you know, uh, uh, A is trying to turn B off and B is trying to turn C off and C is trying to turn D off and D is trying to turn A off. But if A is off, then B goes on. And so the whole thing just runs around in some circle where everybody's trying to, you know, flip the other one to the opposite sign. And, and that kind of thing, which is called frustration in these complex circuits, is really at the essence of why, for instance, uh, uh, neural networks can have uh, complex dynamics in an infinite number of ground states. And these, you know, a lot of the richness has to do with loops that contain frustration. For people who haven't thought about frustration, of course, it's an, an ordinary word that we all kind of know what that means. But imagine you're uh, friends with a couple and they're a married couple and then they have this bitter divorce. It used to be that all the relationships were positive. You liked each of them and they liked each other. But after the divorce, when they now hate each other, it's often difficult. That's a frustrated triangle because if you you can't really stay friends with both of them because they don't want that. They usually want you to choose sides. So right, that, exactly. Perfect. That perfect triangle example. has gone yes. from unfrustrated to frustrated after the divorce. That's great. That's yeah. a great example. Now, now there's a, a new element which turns it from being a, a frustrated static problem. Who are, the, who, who are your friends going to be? you know, for, for the future of the relationships yeah. to a dynamics problem, meaning something like how on a weekly basis do I, do I manage my friendship with the, with the ex, with the exes okay. when, uh, when the information that you get about, uh, he said, she said is delayed in getting to you. And, uh-huh. uh, and, 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 and you get these runaway conditions where you keep picking loyalties and then, you know, you get some piece of information. You say, oh, well, no, you know, now she's a jerk. I'm going to hang out with him. But then a week later, you get some other information that proves that, no, 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 he actually, he was the one who <laughs> said that. So then you say, oh, no, no, he, I, sorry, I was wrong. He's the jerk and I'm going to hang out with her. So you can, you can get situations where because of the delayed propagation of information, what there ends up go. being frustration ends up being something oscillatory. Uh-huh. So, so yes, yeah, so you're doing a, an electronic version. And it was and it's a hard and it's a hard problem to solve on a computer because you need to know the whole time history before you can solve how a delay a delay differential equation, a dif- differential equation system with delays in it works. And it was just easier to just build it. And so there were in fact the funny thing is is it connects it back to the music store because there were 
there were electronic chips that are used in the music industry to create the sound of a like a concert hall with echo. Like if you like if you didn't have an acoustic room where you're being recorded right now, or I didn't, and instead you were in a in a uh, a great uh, church or something like that, it would be echoey. And they make chips that you can buy that create like they're part of the microphone circuit. They create the sound of an echo. So I bought a bunch of these chips. I mean, I just wrote to the company and I said, can I have a whole bunch of these echo chips? And I built the neural network with by and then inserted the echo, the echo chips into the neural network circuit. And then it has a little switch on it that you can like turn the you can control how much echo there is in the, in the circuit. So I could make the the circuits show these oscillating patterns just by turning on the like the church sound. Uh-huh. Boy, that, I never really appreciated that. So so you're not pulling my leg that something about what you learned through your music store experience did directly come in handy in this in this work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That those chips were, you know, there were the you know, like an electric guitar, you could some you can think of some songs where it sounds, you know, <laughs> sure. there's some echoing sound and they do it with those chips. Charlie eventually combined this very hands-on work that he was doing in the lab with something that people tend to think of as incredibly abstract and theoretical and kind of bizarre, quantum physics. Quantum physics deals with tiny particles, particles the size of atoms or even smaller, and how they behave. Uh, It turns out that they behave in a way that's really hard for our macroscopic human brains to understand. When we try to come up with language to describe what's going on down there, we end up saying almost nonsensical things like, it's as if particles aren't really one way or another, it's like they're both. Things aren't just black and white in the quantum world. It's You can be alive and dead at the same time or on and off. It's all sort of indefinite. When I tell people what I do and I say I work in quantum com- computing or I work on quantum physics, the standard answer, it's almost like people are pre-programmed to give this answer, is, oh, that's really complicated. I never understood that. Yeah. Okay. But then, you know, sure. let's say instead... Your wife says, uh, I've got great news. I'm pregnant. N- nobody nobody ever says, mm-hmm. oh, that's really complicated. I, I've thought about that. And I can't, I can't understand how that could that's possibly That's so complicated. <laughs> how does it, you know, if you want to talk about right, things that, that are complicated, <laughs> there's, a, there, there's a lot of complicated stuff out there. Like, like, like where do babies come from? And how do brains work? Yeah. And, you know. Forget about brains. I mean, how does your liver work? I mean, you know, just those things are really complicated. Well, with the babies, is it because it's happening all around us every day? It's so commonplace that we we just confuse familiarity with simplicity. No, I think that there's something else. I think that there's a kind of intentional mythology created within the scientific community. It's it's like this kind of declared profundity or declared complexity or declared it's just declared that's yeah, right that's you just part of the charm it right? as being oh only three people in the world understand it or nobody understands it or, or whatever you just declare that but, but it's just you know it's just not true and in fact i i know that it's not true because i know that i've said things to people where i i i uh i know what i've said isn't very hard 
And I know what I've said, you know, could, could be understood. Or let's just say relatively, like I know that I've said a lot of other hard, harder things. And at the end, they'll still say, oh, that's so confusing. And I'm, and I'm, it's frustrating because you say, what? What, 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 th- what which thing did I, that I just <laughs> said was confusing? I mean, there's no fact that's, there's no fact that's confusing. And, and it's just, it's okay. not that confusing. Wait a second here. I have to push back. Give For all those folks out there who are thinking, wait, I, look, I know quantum mechanics is confusing. People talk about it. it's a wave and it's a particle. It's up and it's down. It's alive and it's dead. You know, so there's no, this counterintuitive. It's just, I'm, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just a big no. Okay, big, big no You know, someone you. shows you a, 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 <laughs> a squirrel and you say, oh, is it a rat yeah. or is it a cat? I don't understand. Is that a rat or is it a cat? The answer is, it's not a rat or a cat. It's a squirrel. And okay, okay, so someone says, oh, is it a a particle or is it a wave? (laughs) It's neither one. I mean, who told you you Uh have to force it into being something that it's like a cat or a rat? It's it's neither one. Why are you you putting it into some box that you have to put it in? It's It's some new thing that you haven't seen before. I go to a new city and someone says, is this Paris or is this Berlin? You say, it's neither one. <laughs> it's a different thing. Well, I mean, wait, hold on. This is a little bit glib yeah, I don't think I mean, I'm I want glib. to agree right? with as you. Long as, you're willing, as long as you're willing to learn that something exists that you didn't know about before. That's the only thing that's being asked but of you. But wait a second. Your, your, squirrel, yeah. your squirrel sometimes acts very much like a that's rat. That's right. I mean, that's right, right. light, which can be both a particle and a wave, sometimes really seems like a particle, and sometimes it really seems like a wave. But sometimes it seems like this third thing. Yes, exactly. Like it will eat. It, it is will that, eat is cat that the food. point? If you put cat food in front of it, it will eat the cat food. <laughs> and you say, oh, well, it must be a cat. <laughs> Look, it's eating the cat food. Yeah. But it, it's not. Right. It's but, just eating cat food. Or if you put it in a maze, it will <laughs> run through the maze. They say, oh, it must be, a, must be a rat. How could it be going through a maze if it's not yeah. a rat? I, I really do think that it's just this new thing. And as long as you're willing, as long as you're willing to say that I can have a new experience, I can, I can see something that I haven't seen before, then there's nothing hard. What's your manifesto here? I guess what I would say at a sort of manifesto level is... What is our process in general for distinguishing truth from falsehood? First of all, do we accept the idea that there are some things that are true and some things that are false? This is a tricky time for for such a notion. But let us say that there is the notion that something can be true and something else can be false. Something else is wrong. Okay. How, how How do we decide? Well, we observe it and we just see what it does. And, and then we try to describe it. And I think that this is what's happened in quantum mechanics. And people, you know, I've even as recently as a, within the last few months, have people say that they don't, they just don't believe quantum mechanics. They think that it's, it goes in the category of f- false ideas. They think that there's essential aspects of quantum mechanics, which, which are not captured by our physical description of quantum mechanics, that, that there's things missing. And, and invariably what this conversation, how this conversation evolves is something like, well, there are very abstract uh, experiments that can be done with Bell inequalities and measurements and entangled. And, and I usually say, stop, 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 stop. If quantum mechanics didn't work, 
you know, that stop sign wouldn't be red. You know, red paint works because of quantum mechanics. Tell us a little why you're thinking that. I mean, I, I can guess, but what yeah, do you mean? Yeah, well, I, what, I mean, what I mean is that our understanding of everything in the world, those things that we're able to understand, okay, red paint, why is red paint red? Because there's some chemical in it, and the chemical has a resonance. And if you want to understand how that resonance comes, you better understand that molecule. And if you want to understand why that molecule has a resonance in red, you better solve for the eigenenergies of that molecule. And if it's a small enough molecule, you can do it. But even if it's too big for you to literally solve that molecule, you certainly believe you understand what's going on. And the origin of its red color is fundamentally quantum mechanical. And if you didn't believe in quantum mechanics... You don't have to do a complicated experiment in order to, to verify quantum mechanics. You could just say, how do I possibly understand anything that I'm experiencing? And, and, and more even than red paint, because red paint would exist even if we didn't understand quantum mechanics. But let me give you an example. Like an LED that shines, you know, every time you, you turn around, there's another LED blinking at you. Sure, I'm looking at one right now. That thing doesn't occur in nature. There are no LEDs in nature. No. Someone had to understand how to build an LED and make it work and make it red and make it green and make it blue and make all those colors work. And that's all quantum mechanics. It all works. It all, it all works just fine. And, and, and that's why it's actually more interesting to look at an LED than it is to look at a red paint because you don't need to understand aerodynamics to see a bird flying. You don't need to understand quantum mechanics to see red paint. But you do need to believe in quantum mechanics if you if you think that someone designed that LED, and they did. So what is the simplest problem where quantum mechanics would show up? And it would be something that could be in one of two states. You know, not everywhere. It can't be like, like position in place because then it's an infinite number of states. But so just re reduce it to its simplest element. It can be in one of two states, which you could call on or off, but there's nothing particularly on or off about them. They're just, you know, A and B. They're just two different states. And then what quantum mechanics says is that the state that that system is in is not determined until it's measured. That it doesn't, it, 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 it will be in a state that is described quantum mechanically as a superposition of those two states. It reminds me of your squirrel and your rat and your cat. Okay. Right. I, I, is it, superposition is a third. It's like something can be not on or not off. I don't want to say on and off because on and off sounds a little... Okay. I want, it, I want them to be sort of similar to each other, like the two states. On and off are kind of different. So let's just call them A and B. The essential element of classical mechanics says that if something can only be in the state A or B, then it even if you don't look at it and you don't know, it is in either A or B. Those were the rules. The rules of the game were that it had to be in either A or B. So if you accept those rules, then you say, okay, well, now I'm putting it, you know, I'm not, I'm closing my eyes. Uh, what possible states are it in? And you just say, well, you just told me it can either be in A or B. Good. So nothing complicated there. Quantum mechanics introduces a new possibility to that list. So I guess you would say it's a third thing, although it's a third thing composed of the first two, which is that you can say that it can be a little bit of A and a little bit of B. And 
so far so good. I mean, I don't know that that anybody is now having a heart attack, you know, listening to this. <laughs> I mean, do you? Do you think that if I say, well, it could be a little bit of, you know, like new rule, it can be a little bit of A and a little bit of B. You know, and maybe if you if you if you're the kind of person who likes to force it into things you already know, then think of things that can be a little bit of something and a little bit of something else. Oh, yeah. What are those? Can What's you think an example of, any? of something? Orange is a little bit of yellow and a little bit of red. Uh, you know, an Arnold Palmer is a little bit of lemonade and a little bit of iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> that works very you know, nobody, well. <laughs> nobody's going to say, what an Arnold Palmer? I don't understand. <laughs> how could it be? How could it be iced tea and lemonade? Everybody understands that. Okay, good. So it's this new category of thing. But now there's something, there's a new rule and you have to accept the new rule. And, and this is something which, which is, you know, it's called a postulate of quantum mechanics, which means it's not, it's not really derived from anything. It just, it's, it just appears to be a fact. And when you say it appears to be a fact, it means if you do a whole bunch of experiments and you take this fact to be a fact, you keep getting the right answer to all of these experiments. And so it's not something which is supposed to make sense. That's not how we got it. We didn't get it because it makes sense. We got it because if you say this is true, then the predictions of all of your outcomes will be valid. And here it is. That if you measure something with an apparatus that is capable of giving, let's say, only one of two answers, then the quantum system will give you an answer to that particular question. The simplest case that's familiar to us is polarizers. You know, like polarizers that your sunglasses can let light through. Like, you know, if you take a polarized uh -huh. sunglasses, half the light gets through. I don't know whether it's ever bothered you to ask the question, which half? <laughs> you know, light's on its way. It's coming to the glasses and half of it's going to get through and the other half of it is not going to get through. And now I'm one little particle of light. Well, I'm using language again, but I'm saying I'm some bit of light that's going to try to get through. Am I a, the lucky guy who gets through or the unlucky guy who doesn't get through? And now here's the, here's the postulate of quantum mechanics, which is, if you ask a question like, do I get through or not get through? Or am I oriented north-south? Or am I oriented east-west? Or, or am I in A or am I in B? That the apparatus will determine what answer the system will give. So the system can have many answers available, you know, an infinite number of answers available. The, the, the simplest case is this orientation business of the polarizer. Orient it north-south, and it will answer, I, I, I got through that. Orient it east-west, and it will answer, I got through that. And so the quantum mechanics system is one in which it will answer the question that's asked of it. Um, but it doesn't have a gigantic dictionary on board to look up, if you ask me this question, I'll give you that answer. If you ask me this question, I'll give you that answer. It just, it kind of makes up an answer irrespective of what, what question you ask. I'm just having a little bit of an Eastern philosophy moment here as I'm listening to it because it's it's very cool, this whole thing. And this 
This is partly, I think, why you get books like the Tao of Physics. Once when I was giving a lecture about Taoism and its relation to chaos theory, I, I happened to meet a scholar uh, of Tao, and he said, you know, if you ask what is the Tao, he said it's undifferentiated potential. It's infinite potential. You know, it's, it's all possibilities wrapped up. And it just seems like that's a close notion to what you're talking about, this idea that there's that this quantum system has all these possibilities. No, look, I think that that we're aligned. We're aligned, Steve, in the following sense. My statements up until now have been that the difficulty that people have with quantum mechanics is that they bring a certain worldview to the problem. And it certainly is the case that other cultures might have gotten it righter you know, that, that we can now, okay. in hindsight, say, you know, this view of how the world works is actually much closer to how we think quantum mechanics works than, than in the other notion of everything being causal and everything being predetermined. And, and you know, the, hmm. may, maybe the American idea of, of, you know, like if you slip and fall on the street, it's somebody's fault. You know, nothing, yeah. nothing just happens. <laughs> everything, is, right. everything is causal. You know, you wouldn't have fallen wow. unless some other guy would have put the, you know, the, 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 his hose and it would have frozen overnight and made the ice and then you could trace <laughs> it back and then you could sue the bastard. So, you know, the, the idea of there being causal relationships between everything that happens is a right. philosophy. And you're saying that Dao- yes. Taoism may just release that causal chain. So I'm okay with that. I think that that sounds right to me. After the break, Charlie tries to untangle the Gordian knot of building a quantum computer by actually using knots themselves. The fun of learning about science and math doesn't have to stop with this podcast. The MIT Press has published two books from Quantum Magazine. In Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, explore our quantum reality and the mysteries of time, black holes, deep learning, and the origin of life. In The Prime Number Conspiracy, meet the world's greatest mathematical minds and immerse yourself in their insights. You can find Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy wherever you buy books, including Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. You can also listen to them as audiobooks on Audible. From Quantum Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. So why are scientists like Charlie trying to build a quantum computer? Well, you have to think about what an ordinary computer does. I mean, it operates on zeros and ones. Its transistors are on or off. You know, it's just one state or the other, binary. And an ordinary computer just chugs along one calculation at a time with this kind of binary information. But a quantum computer wouldn't be limited like that. It would have a gift of being indefinite. That would mean it could explore many possibilities and do many calculations all in parallel at the same time, which would give it the potential to crack currently uncrackable codes and solve enormous problems that have been completely out of reach. These are problems that are just impossible. Or they're past their exponent where, where it's, you know, age of the universe type 
characteristic times to solve them, and you just can't solve them. I mean, you, you, there's just no machine. There, there is no machine that will approach them. So you're back to experiment again. You know, you could ask the same question: Is there a room temperature superconductor? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have all of our levitated railways, you know, have be operating at room temperature? There's certainly no theorem in physics that says that all room temperature, all, all superconductors have to be ultra low temperature and a pain in the neck to achieve. You know, there's no, there's no malicious God, you know, who's preventing us from having a room temperature superconductor. Uh, but then you say, well, where do I start looking? I don't know. You know, you can, you have some general principles that you might want to use as to, to motivate you, but you can't calculate any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's too complicated. Mm -hmm. You mean, so if you were trying so to design are, one in the computer, since we know the basic principles. The computer because, you know, there's a big periodic table and it's not going to be the pure elements and it's not going to be the binaries. Those have all been checked. You know, then again, it's just too hard to start trying everything in the laboratory. I mean, there's this cr crazy and funny an interesting story about magnesium diboride. I don't know if you've heard this. Uh, that one? No, of course I haven't heard no, it. <laughs> it doesn't go that well at cocktail parties, but there, there was a chemical called, you know, and there still is, called magnesium diboride. Yeah. And, you know, you could buy it from the Alpha ASAR catalog. It was a, just a chemical that was on everybody's shelf. And uh, oh, every, every chemist. Right. Okay. Yeah. Magnesium diboride on their shelf. And it turned out it's a high temperature superconductor. Hmm. I mean, it's not, look at it. It's, it's magnesium diboride. It's two borons and a magnesium. Mm -hmm. It's not that sounds pretty. Sounds like almost as simple as something could be. That's like water. Yeah. Right? So here's this high temperature superconductor that's been sitting on every chemist's shelf for 100 years. Yeah. And besides high temperature superconductors, there are lots of other problems that only a quantum computer could solve. Like, what kind of material absorbs carbon the best? Or what would make the best fertilizer? Or, as Charlie explains, if there's something that could replace a rare metal that we're currently using all over the place in our electronics. Capacitors that are in most of our electronics contain tantalum. And tantalum is a great element for, um, you know, you probably spend your whole life not appreciating the value of tantalum. No, I have never even thought about it. Right? You know, it's just some dumb thing in the middle of the periodic table that, you know, you skip over or, unless you're listening to uh, uh, Tom Lair, you know, or something. <laughs> in his um, song about the periodic table. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but tantalum, but if you, but if you, but if you lived in, in, um, you know, some of these war-torn areas in Central Africa where um, mining is, you know, sort of the analog of blood diamond. Uh, is you know blood tantalum, really? Be because it because it's used in capacitors that are inside of of all these microelectronics. Wow! So you're saying M the world supply an effort, of there was an effort, and I don't know whether this may be a slightly old news. In fact, I, I, forgive me if it is old news because I think that there was an effort to get tantalum out of these capacitors, and maybe industry since the last time I read about it has been successful in getting tantalum out of these capacitors, and then it's no longer part of it. I don't know. I actually don't know about that, but. Um, huh. Here's a material that, you know, has been the basis of, of wars and that's part of our capacitors in all of our modern electronics. Is there another element or combination of elements with, that we could replace tantalum with that works just as well? I don't know. And these are hard, hard, hard computation problems. So here, so here I can make a very clear statement. I mean, there are some problems that it's not known whether they are beyond quantum computing. Yeah. But 
but problems that are intrinsically quantum mechanical. Uh-huh. Uh, where, for instance, whether something becomes a superconductor or not is a quantum mechanics problem. Okay. Whether or not this molecule is red is a quantum mechanics problem. Yes. These are intrinsically quantum mechanical problems. I see. And so, and so building a machine that is at its heart a quantum machine and exactly how it works and exactly what algorithms it works on, okay, that, that's not known. But these are problems which are quantum physics problems. Another way of saying it is that they, they live in the very high dimensional space that quantum mechanics occupies. This is maybe getting a little abstract, but they, they live in this very high dimensional space that quantum mechanics occupies instead of living in the classical three-dimensional space that we normally inhabit. The big obstacle to building a quantum computer starts with something called a qubit. Qubits are the building blocks of quantum computers, and they're very delicate, very fragile little finicky objects. Any little noise or jiggle from the environment can ruin them and cause them to collapse into a normal classical bit. Something binary, meaning something that's A or B. And then that ruins the whole quantum system. You, you gotta stop them from getting accidentally measured into being either A or B. But unfortunately, there are all kinds of things that can lead to this sort of accidental measurement. What you can say is that any encounter, it could be simply that um, when an atom gets near an atom or when something gets near something, that it raises its energy a little bit. Like let's say, let's say two, two balloons that are, you know, you rub them on the wall so they're static, they're staticky. Okay. And I bring them near each other. You could say, oh, well, that's not an encounter because not, nothing happened. But if the electricity on one felt the electricity on the other, so that the overall energy of that two balloon system was raised because all those charges were then put near each other, that would be enough of an encounter that if you took them back apart again, the quantum mechanics would remember that encounter. So all of a sudden, everything gets out of phase and out of whack. They know that they encountered something. So let me give a little visual here because I, I have something in my head and I bet you have something similar in your head, but unless we say it explicitly, it may not be <laughs> in our listener's head, which is that when you speak of phase, I'm picturing a point running around a circle abstractly. Exactly, on a clock face, a, a hand of a clock. Yeah. And so when you put the balloons near each other, that that little abstract dot runs around faster. It makes more laps than it would have otherwise. If it raises the energy, it runs faster. Yeah. And if it lowers the energy, it runs Okay. Slower. And so it's like if that thing were a clock, actually like the hand of a clock winding around, you'd see the change in phase as a change in time. That's what you meant by getting out of whack or yes, out of Yes, absolutely. That's right. They would, yeah. they, would get, they would get out of phase proportional to like how long they spent in that encounter. Okay. And so, and so almost anything that constitutes an interaction that needn't, needn't be one electron jumps off of one balloon and goes onto the other balloon. That's, a, that's also such an example, but, it, but it's more than what one needs. Um, we'll, we'll create, when those two things are separated and remain in some quantum mechanical state, something which is um, entangled. So entanglement became this kind of known phenomenon about what happens when two parts of a system were at one time interacting. Yeah. And then even if you remove the interaction, they have a memory of, 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 of having done that. Hmm. Now, what happens in quantum mechanics is, you know, just like putting a picture of yourself in a compromised position that you email to a friend and say, whatever you do, don't share this picture with anybody. <laughs> okay. That's how long it takes for the picture to be all over the internet. <laughs> 
And, and it's the same situation with entanglement. You say, well, this photon, this electron or photon or whatever are entangled. But then that photon goes and gets entangled with somebody else. And that one gets entangled with two more. And pretty soon, in about a nanosecond or something, the whole universe knows and oh, you know, wow. can download the picture when they want. I never knew this, that it's telephone, a big game of telephone. It's a big, uncontrolled, runaway entanglement. Oh. That, that, that is unbounded and, and suddenly, quickly cascades out as far as it can. And that's what I mean by measurement. Ah, thank you. Beautiful. So interesting. You need to make some system which when you're not, when you intentionally don't disrupt it, it's hands off. But when you do want to adjust it, you can adjust it pretty fast. And that the figure of merit of how good of a qubit it is, is the ratio between how long it remains unmeasured by the environment when you're trying not to measure it, divided by how quickly you can manipulate it when you do want to measure it. If you can get that ratio up into the range of 10,000 or something like that, then it becomes possible to do something called fault tolerance. Uh. Fault tolerance in a quantum mechanical context is if you can achieve this number, say 10,000 or whatever it is, it's gonna be, it depends a little bit on the qubit, then you can make a system of, say, two qubits or three qubits or four qubits or five qubits or more than more qubits that last longer than the constituent parts. There's a crossover, a threshold. And I think that most of us ex have experienced in our lives something in which, you know, we've been on committees, you know, faculty committees or whatever, our work committees. And sometimes having six or seven people on the committee makes the committee better. And sometimes having six or seven people on the committee makes it of worse. Of course, right. Generically, it makes it worse. Right. <laughs> it's harder to get to answers. You wish all those people would just leave the room and you yeah. just decide it on your own. But sometimes having you know four or five people in the room actually lets you get places you couldn't get otherwise. And that's true with qubits. When you get to that threshold, then you can scale your system into the realm in which you can have an arbitrarily long-lived, effective, logical qubit and and what's what's um, what's amazing is that this is all kind of verified math. It's not uh, you know it's not a it's not controversial like quantum mechanics itself. But nobody's done it. And no one's succeeded in making it yet. No one has succeeded in making has crossing that threshold fault tolerance. Yeah, yeah, I mean it was a little bit like in you know Terminator Two when the thing achieved consciousness. Nobody has made <laughs> a fault tolerant system that is better when scaled. So when we hear about the occasional report of this or that person has made a, a, a quantum computer, which go, those reports go back. Those are true. Those are all true. They, and those they are, are true in a certain people. sense, but not yeah. in this sense. They haven't- Not in this sense. Yeah. Not in this sense. They're true in a certain sense. And, and by the way, I would, like to, I would like to come down very much on the side in favor of those, um, those efforts. Because I would say anybody who says anything negative about, oh, well, it's not a real quantum computer or whatever. They don't understand how lab life really works. Lab life really works where you build a little thing and you learn, and then you fix those problems. Then you build a little bigger thing and you learn more, and you build a little bigger thing and then you learn more. And, and so these exercises to build small quantum computers, find out how they work, program them, 
see how hard you can push. You know, this is the way to approach experiment and this is the way to approach a technology. I think, I think that it's absolutely great and perfect. But so is it that you and your colleagues have a particular strategy for how to try to get to this threshold? About 20 years ago now, a group of people led by Alexei Kataev, who's now at Caltech, and uh, a number of other people, including Mike Friedman, who was at Microsoft at the time, thought about ways using the analogy to knots. You know, you can dig up uh, financial records now that are 5,000 years old. And the way they were kept was by taking string and tying knots in the string. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are, you know, these pieces and they, right. And there's, they, they even used a decimal system. This was in Mesoamerica. This is crazy. I never heard this. Mesoamerica. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like so, a so Mayans again, or somebody? Another thing to look up. It's called a Kipu. Q-U-I-P-O. Q-U-I-P-O. Kipo. Yeah. And these were, these were, you know, records that were kept by tying knots and string. And um, the string itself hasn't decomposed after because it's somehow in an oxygen. Yeah, it was buried in the dirt, and it was it's in the know, dirt, yeah. low oxygen or something like that. But the, but I mean, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of them fell apart. The string fell apart, but the ones that the string didn't fall apart, you better believe that the knot didn't like accidentally. Right, come the out. knot didn't untie itself. The knot didn't untie itself. Yeah. Maybe the entire system melted or whatever or fell apart. But we can say it in the following way. The environment that measures a system isn't very intelligent. It doesn't know how to untie a knot. And if you can encode quantum information in a topological structure, then that information will also not be subject to measurement by a dumb environment. And what's happened in my lab since then is asking the question, where in nature can you find states that can be tied in knots? And, and it's, uh, it's very interesting because, you know, if you, if you look around at most of the particles that we encounter in our everyday life, they fall into the category of, of bosons and fermions. And neither bosons nor fermions can be tied in a knot, but that's not the only that's not those aren't are. the only games in town not huh? the only games in town this is really the crux of charlie's work right now he's saying that there are particles out there that could be candidates for the ideal qubit these are particles that that charlie is calling topologically non-trivial they're not the particles you would have learned about if you took physical chemistry or quantum theory all of us who took those courses were brought up on things called um bosons or fermions, this would be a new class of quantum particle with this strange property that they can encode information in knots. If you picture a particle as a point, you could almost think of these particles as having a little string hanging down from them. They're more like strings than points. And so when you move them around, it's as if there's some string hanging under the table. And so as you manipulate these particles, those strings below the table can, in a certain sense, get braided together, get tied up and tangled in knots. That's the topologically non-trivial thing that Charlie is hoping to exploit in a future quantum computer. Imagine now a table with, I'm looking at my table here, I've got three coffee cups, two pens, and a mouse. Let's imagine that I do the following. I move them all around the table. Okay, I mean, you can probably hear me. Yeah, good, it's good. Around the table, right? Uh-huh. And now... 
I'm putting them back exactly where they were. Yes. Exactly where they were. I see, I see, I see now. Okay. So in your third dimension, you've actually got, you're imagining the string to have moved so that if I looked straight up from the string at that time corresponding to the depth or the, the change in the Z, the, the vertical change. I, I know what, geez, it's not easy to say in words. I see. But you're keeping track of where everything was at every time, with yeah, time the being the third totally dimension. Tangled under the table. Yeah, yeah. In fact, okay. I've made a whole sweater under the table. <laughs> you know, and you can really say that the sweater that you're wearing right now yeah. is does record the time history. That's true. Of every needle that went around every other needle. Yeah, that's right. That in, in, in a plane. And this was like the sweater that emerged in the third dimension oh, beautiful. Out, of, okay. out of the problem. Well, that sweater is now the computation. Mm. Okay, so if you can make a non-abelian particle, a non-abelian particle, yeah, right. a particle who's, who, that, can, that, can, that, that is non-trivial under Okay, and that's your task now is and to that, make... Okay, so then you can say, boy, that seems like a hard way to make a quantum computer. And I think that the, the, the answer to that is, yeah, it is hard. It's, it's cool, but it's also hard. But that tells you how critically important it is to prevent accidental decoherence. Yeah, decoherence meaning this... Uh, the measurement, this measurement, the measurement this in, problem. inadvertent measurement is so profoundly difficult to get yourself to fault tolerance that if you can invent a particle that allows itself to be braided and that the braiding is invisible to a dumb, unstructured, and local environment, mm -hmm. then that qubit will last arbitrarily long. Mm -hmm. and now it comes the question of how quickly can I move these coffee cups around the tabletop? Oh, okay. I mean, this is something that happened in Copenhagen just about the time that I was moving here was that a, a material scientist uh, named Peter Krogstrup was able to grow that semiconductor, that particular semiconductor, and the superconductor that that together produces this, this excitation uh, in a single crystal. So the crystal is like half superconductor, half semiconductor, but with perfect registry, you know, like, like atomic registry. And, you know, that had never existed before. That material never existed before. And, uh, and that material actually made this first generation of very good materials that had these that we believe had these these excitations in them now what we're in the middle of right now is turning that excitation into a qubit which involves moving them around each other and seeing that you've done it braiding them if you want to call it that mm -hmm. and verifying that you've braided them and then unbraiding them and seeing that you know when you do trivial operations you get one kind of answer when you do non-trivial operations you get another kind of an answer and you know, you better believe that we're not as far along as some of these spin qubits or superconducting qubits, the qubits that have been, you know, basically they were existing technologies for manipulating spin or mani mm. manipulating. These are competitors you're talking about. Other yeah, competitors. Well, okay, I don't want to be yeah. let's say alternatives. Alternatives, you know, nicer alternatives. word. They're alternatives. By the way, they're alternatives that we think about every day, and they're alternatives that they're probably thinking about not a billion. I, I guess they're just, you know, different people have put their money on different bets at this point. But you swear that the one you're working on is going to win. I don't know. So listening to Charlie talk about what's happening at the edge of knowledge in quantum physics today on this quest to build a quantum computer, I was really struck by a couple things. You know, he talks about not feeling quite in competition with these other teams, that they're all learning from each other. They're all thinking about ways they could incorporate their the best ideas of their friends. And, and it sort of reminds me that science is this long human story, very long. You know, when you think of the 
pre-Inca civilization that was storing knowledge in knots and braids. It's sort of emblematic of science in general, that we can learn from, from ancient peoples 5,000 years ago, and in a way, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet there is something new under the sun, because if we do have quantum computers someday based on these topological ideas, they will absolutely change the world. That's the kind of paradox that quantum theory itself is all about. There's nothing new, and there is something new. Next time on The Joy of X, neurobiologist Eve Martyr on the quirky things that set us on our scientific path. And she came back from the first day of class saying, Eve, you've got to come take this course. And I said, well, why? And she said, because the professor's really cool. He's got a British accent, and he's got a dueling scar, and he wears three-piece suits. <laughs> a dueling scar? You mean like he got slashed by somebody? He had a scar on his cheek. The Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>